Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers, from minimum wage to six-figure incomes, high school diplomas to PhDs, you'll hear stories from different professionals, their everyday work life, and what it took to get there. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice, or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we will be looking at speech-language pathology. Some kids, unfortunately, are treated differently if they have a communication disorder. And so the more that you can make it like a safe and fun place, the the more likely a kid is going to be engaged in making that progress. Thank you, Amy, for joining me on the podcast today. So if you can just kind of introduce yourself. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Amy David. I am a speech language pathologist. I live in the Boston area in Massachusetts. And I work in a charter school in Boston. And that's a little bit about me. And can you tell me just a little bit about your position and what it means to be a speech language pathologist? Sure. Yeah. So I, like I said, work at a charter school. I am the only SLP at the school. So I cover the grades pre-K through eighth grade at my school. And What I do is basically I work with kids who have speech and language disorders, who have IEP, an individualized education plan is what that stands for. They get special education services. So I help kids with speech sounds. I help kids with language comprehension, social communication, and then of course do a lot of collaborating across other specialties at my school. So, And can I ask how many students you have that you provide these services for? Yeah, so my caseload is hovers around 30, 35, which I know in the SLP, school-based SLP world, that's actually a little bit low. Many SLPs have pretty high caseloads, but because I work in a charter school, it's a little bit different. How long have you been in this position? I'm starting my fourth year at the school. I've been out of grad school for five years. So this was your first position out of grad school or have you worked elsewhere? I worked in one position for the first year out of grad school in early intervention. So I worked with the birth to three age range here in Boston as well, which I enjoyed, but just kind of wanted to branch out and, and do other things out just being, you know, fresh out of grad school. So Sure. That's neat. That's really cool. I, I actually had speech language services as well when I was in oh, elementary yeah? school and I remember it so vividly. It was so fun. I loved, I remembered, I I kind of, I graduated from it in, I think fourth grade was the last year I remember, but from first grade to fourth grade, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, say my S's. I had a lisp. I remember it so vividly getting those services and it was, I loved my, my therapist. And then I did want to mention too, just, so that's sort of the setting that I'm in, but a speech language pathologist can do a lot more than just work in a school. There are, you know, early intervention like I did, there's SLPs in hospitals who work with, you know, can work from birth to death basically Mm -hmm. um, for an age range, do language treatment after someone has like a stroke or a traumatic brain injury. Um, You can work with patients with cognitive decline like dementia or Alzheimer's. We do swallowing therapy. That's usually in the pediatric or the geriatric client or, you know, age range. Yeah. So it's a really wide range of what you can do with this degree. Did you always know that you wanted to work in a school setting? I actually went into grad school thinking I wanted to do early intervention, which is why I started out in early intervention. Mm -hmm. And I do really enjoy that age group, but it was just a little bit too narrow for me. I think I would enjoy working with some clients that age, but not 
exclusively, you know, two-year-olds who have a language delay. It got a little bit too monotonous for me, I think. But I did think that I always wanted to work with kids and I really enjoy working with kids. But I did do some experience, you know, some clinical experiences in grad school with adults, which I also really enjoyed. And I would be open to doing that again. Um, but this is kind of where I've landed. So what I, one thing I really love about the field is that there is so much variety in what you can do. Mm-hmm. And how did you hear about this field? Or is it something that you've kind of known about most of your life and just kind of always knew you wanted to do? I didn't know about it, actually. I, I'm sure there were kids in my school who saw a therapist too, but I didn't know about it and just didn't really have a lot of experience with it. I, I mean, I'm sure, you know, I knew what speech therapists were in general, but my freshman year of college, I became friends with a family who had kids on the autism spectrum. And so sort of through my relationship with this family, I was kind of like introduced to the whole world of like disability and services and therapies and things like that, that I hadn't ever experienced before. And I met a colleague of the mom of that family who was an SLP and sort of like shadowed and really liked it. So then I started taking the introduction courses in college and really just loved it. So I kept going and headed in that direction. Can you tell me a little bit about the level of education and experience that's required for your position? So uh, it sounds like you really need a master's degree Mm -hmm. and then any licenses that you need to obtain. Sure. Yeah. So I did my bachelor's in communication disorders, but there are a lot of people who go into graduate school from unrelated fields. They usually have to complete some prereqs to get into the master's programs. But um, yeah, then you need a master's in speech language pathology. And after graduate school, you have to pass a praxis test, and then you have to do a clinical fellowship year, which is where you're working under a licensed SLP for a certain number of hours. Full-time, it's about nine months. And then once you finish that, you can get your license from the ASHA board. NASHA is the American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, so like the national governing board. And you get what are called your C's, your Certificate of Clinical Competence. There are lots of acronyms. (laughs) And so that is the national license that you have. And then you usually also need a state license, depending on your setting. So I have two. I have the ASHA license and then a Massachusetts license. And then you have to like maintain that license with continuing education courses over Over the, I think the, the licensure period is three years. So you have to get like about 30 hours of continuous of the education. continuing education. Yeah. Okay. What are the demographics of your field? Do you see more, is it a female dominated field? And as well as age, what ages do you typically see? So yeah, mostly female, mostly probably women in their thirties or forties, I would say in my grad school program there, I think there were like 36 six of us in the cohort and only three or four were not female. (laughs) So it's pretty female. It's kind of like teaching, usually pretty female dominated. And yeah, in my experience, it's been like 30s and 40s age range about. What is the salary, the range of salary that someone can typically expect to make in your position and with your years of experience? So again, pay varies pretty widely across settings. In my setting in schools, so I have five years of experience and I make around 60000 a year. So in early intervention, make the least usually. And if you work in a hospital or a nursing home, you usually make the most kind of in the totem pole. 
and schools are like kind of somewhere in the middle. <laughs> okay. So what is that high range that you're seeing in the hospitals? My experience, I'd probably get like 70, 75,000 okay. in like a nursing home, but because I haven't worked in one, I'm not exactly sure on that. But In your job, how is your progress measured and who is managing you? My direct supervisor is the director of special education at our school. That's unique, again, because we're a standalone charter. In a district, you would probably, a regular public school district, you would probably be supervised probably by another SLP or someone, you know, the director of special, special education is usually a district level position. And so I have an unusual amount of interaction with her. So I am part of the special education department and then she's my direct supervisor. And then we have regular employee reviews a couple of times a year and they use the state education department rubrics for performance for those reviews. And what are they looking at? Are they looking at the amount of children you see versus how many graduate from the program or what, I guess, what are they measuring? The categories, if I can think of them off the top of my head, are usually the ways that you're engaging with students and the curriculum. And again, that's a little bit different between like a teacher versus an SLP. And then they're looking at like assessment measures like how you're doing that. So what that looks like for me is I usually set a goal in that area and communicate that with my supervisor. And then we sort of measure progress in that goal area. So as an example, one goal that I've been working on the last couple of years is really like diversifying my assessment tools to be more appropriate for the population that I work with. Because with testing measures in education in general, it's often can be like quite biased against children of color or children who are in poverty. And so working, you know, in Boston, I have a lot of students who fit that, mm-hmm. that demographic. And I want to make sure that I'm assessing them in a fair way and not labeling someone with a language disorder just because they've had a different experience growing up than a kid who lives in the suburbs. So that's a goal that I've been working on. And then we just sort of talk about like what I've been doing to reach that goal. So, you know, taking classes or buying different assessment measures and things like that to use for school. What are your typical work hours? Pre-COVID, <laughs> I was working about 7.30 to 3.30, 4 okay. o'clock. This last year, I had a baby in 2019, and I had a little bit reduced hours this last school year. So I was coming home at like 2 o'clock instead of 3.30 or 4.00. And that's a really great thing too, at least at my school. And I know kind of generally in the profession, there is a lot of room for flexibility if, you know, you're a parent or you don't want to work full time. Do you make your own schedule? Because do you kind of decide when you see your different kids? Yes, I am able to say it would work better for me to be here earlier in the day than the teachers so I can pick up a couple of kids during breakfast time or whatever. And then I do make my own schedule during the day as well. I schedule when I see the kids. So there is some flexibility in hours in that way too. In my job, I make the schedule at the beginning of the year and it's kind of like set for that time. But I do have, if I needed to miss some time during the day, I could always pick a kid up at a different time and make up those hours or something. So That's great. And then obviously you follow the school schedule. So you Mm -hmm. don't do weekends and then you have like a Christmas break and Thanksgiving break and all that. And summer. I have the summer off as well. Can you talk about what your schedule was like when you worked in early intervention? What was that like? Yeah. So in that 
um, setting, I really made my own schedule and it changed day to day, week to week. So it was really easy to build in things like doctor's appointments and stuff like that were year round. So we didn't have any like big breaks off, but the major holidays, I usually worked about nine to five at that job. And in early intervention, you typically do home visits. So I spent all day basically driving around Boston from house to house doing home yeah. visits which is another reason why I wasn't super keen on staying there because right. that wasn't my favorite thing to do. Yeah. But it was a really great experience. And, you know, I'm glad for a lot of reasons that I did have that experience. So, Can you walk me through an average day at your job from the time, I guess you're not going into the office, so the time that you start <laughs> to the time that you're done for the day? Yeah. So right now it's very crazy and disjointed because I have a one and a half year old at home. And so I'm, you know, getting work in where I can, but pre COVID it would be, I'd usually go in a little before my first session. So I could kind of prep for the day. And then throughout the day, I'd have either sessions with kids or meetings for planning or meetings for those IEPs, the individualized education plans. So that, that those meetings are with like teachers and other professionals and the family to sort of plan out what we do for the kid to support their education. And then uh, I do testing, writing up assessment reports. I do billing for Medicaid or like planning for therapy. And so throughout the day, it can, you know, I usually would have like a few kids in a row and then a 30 minute to an hour period of time where I would do something different like paperwork or meetings and things like that depending on when I schedule the kids, hopefully it's really nice to have like a half an hour at the end of the day to kind of clean up and, you know, think about the next day, but not always. Sometimes I would just throw everything in the closet and, and run to my car. So <laughs> yeah. So just basically either seeing kids or some sort of paperwork thing throughout sure. the day. Okay. Can you kind of walk me through a, a session with a kid, just what that looks like and what, what interventions you're providing? Sure. Yeah. So we'll pick We'll pick a kid working on articulation, so speech sound, an S, for example. We'll take your example. <laughs> so usually I would go pick the child up from their, their class, and or sometimes it's a group of children, not, not always okay. just one, depending on scheduling and things like that. And obviously the higher caseload you have, the more groups you need to have because you can't really accommodate everyone individually. We do some sort of warm-up to work on the strategies that we have with the speech sound. Usually there are pictures involved, like, if it's a little kid, especially, I'll have a picture, a mouth in the way that you produce the sound. And then we usually like name the sound something kind of silly. So the S sound would be the snake sound or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's like motivating, hopefully to them. And then we usually play some sort of game while we're practicing to make it fun and engaging. And so, you know, either the game, you take turns and do your speech sounds in between the turns or the you know, there are lots of games that you can incorporate the therapy into. And basically, we just do as many repetitions as possible for articulation. So you just get, try to get them to say the sound in the words as much as possible to really work on building that habitual progress. And then usually for like behavior purposes, I tend to build in like a reward at the end of the session. So they get a few minutes of free time or sometimes, you know, they earn walking back to their class by themselves or something like that. So yeah, there's usually hopefully about 20 minutes of really good solid work time in between the 
transitions and settling down and things like that on either side. That sounds so fun. I, but like I said, my biggest memory of it is it just being really fun and me being so excited to, to go. Yeah, that's great. We try to, right? Because it can be hard to feel like there's something different mm-hmm. you have to work on than your peers. And some kids, unfortunately, are treated differently if they have a communication disorder. And so the more that you can make it a safe and fun place, the the more likely a kid is going to be engaged in making that progress and, you know, hopefully feeling positive about the experience in general. I I guess what's the the typical time of turnaround you see with these kids? Like how quick have you seen a kid just breeze through and make that progress and, and no longer need services to how long could a kid potentially be getting that service? Yeah, so that's a great question. It really depends on Number one, if there are coexisting disabilities, if it's just a speech sounds that you're working on, then, you know, a kid can really make quick progress and get through in a couple of years or, you know, maybe three mm-hmm. or four. But many of my students also have an intellectual impairment or, you know, other factors, other diagnoses that would indicate that they wouldn't make super rapid progress. So they might be in speech their entire elementary school career, you know, just to work on those skills all along. So yeah, that that really depends. There are lots of kids who just have a little bit of a hard time with their speech sounds or they're slow to develop their language, but once they get it, they kind of take off. And so those kids would move through more rapidly. And at my school, I don't really have a population of kids with super severe disabilities, but if you did work at a school with more severe to profound disabilities, it would be a different story in terms of timeline. That, yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, so like you mentioned, you have sessions with your kids and then you also build in time to do paperwork and things like that. How often do you interact with other people, whether it be kids or, or coworkers, versus how often do you spend time in your office by yourself? In terms of percentage, I would say like 10 to 15% of the day is spent my, by myself, but otherwise I'm with kids or coworkers. It depends on the day, like what's scheduled that day. And then Also, there are times when I really just have to get in the paperwork zone and do progress reports that come up four times a year or, you know, write an IEP or write an assessment, things like that. And so then I'll spend more alone time working on those things. There are times, you know, when I spend the entire day working on progress reports, which is, those are not my favorite days, but (laughs) generally I am interacting with other people most of the day. What is the best or most rewarding day that you've had at your job? Generally, when I get to, when I have days where I get to spend time really building relationships with the kids that I work with, as opposed to being really worried about progress or planning therapy and things like that, sometimes I'll get permission to go on a field trip with a class things like that are really fun and rewarding, building those relationships. One thing, a goal I have in my own practice is to really find ways to sort of marry that with the therapy I'm doing every day. So it feels really heavy on relationship building. And, you know, I get, I do get to do that in therapy a lot, but those times when I don't have to be focused on the more stressful parts of my job and I just get to focus on the kids, those are the best days. Okay. And then the opposite, what is maybe a really bad day that sticks out or what is a challenge that you often face at your work? So like I said, anytime there's a big paperwork project, those are Mm -hmm. challenging days for me. Also, if I have a marathon meeting day, those are not my, Mm -hmm. my best times either, which is unfortunate because it is really nice to be able to get 
time with families, but there are times when it's just like back to back to back. And it's just so exhausting to be in that type of setting all day. So those are hard. And then, you know, in terms of the kids behavior, there can be some really hard behaviors that can make a a day really challenging, depending on what's going on with the kid or, you know, other things like that. So behavior management is definitely a thing that can be really challenging about my job. Is that something that they included in your education? Did they have behavior management classes? A little bit. I would have liked more, but we did definitely talk about it to some extent. And then, you know, you get a lot of clinical experience in your grad school program too. And so you, you get experience in that way too, but yeah, it would have been nice to feel a little bit more equipped coming out of grad school to deal with that. What's just kind of a fun story that if you were in a room with other SLPs, you'd, you, you know, you'd be able to say, okay, you'll never guess what yeah. happened to me this <laughs> last week. Just kind of a fun story to share. Just kind of the fact that when you're around kids, they often just say really silly things. One example I did think of was when I was pregnant with my daughter, I got a lot of funny comments about pregnancy in general, but there was one time I had just gotten to the point in my pregnancy where I couldn't really hide that I was pregnant anymore. And I wasn't really trying to hide it, but I also wasn't like showing it off. And so I started wearing maternity clothes that were a little bit more obvious that I was pregnant. And I think it was a sixth grader saw me and was like, what? He said, he said, when did you find out you were pregnant? <laughs> like he was so surprised to see that I was, you know, far, far along in a pregnancy that he thought like, I must have just discovered it too. Yeah. <laughs> so lots of silly comments like that. And, you know, it's just really fun to work with kids and the, the topics of conversation that you end up having that you never thought you would talk about at work and <laughs> things like that. So lots of lots of joy throughout the day with just the greatest kids, you know. That sounds really rewarding and just, like you said, getting to build relationships with kids in that setting. What is the end goal for someone in your position? Are there, is there kind of like a ladder to work up or what, when, where do people typically like to end their career in? Yeah, so the cool thing about being an SLP is that you could have a very engaging and varied experience in your career in the same setting for 30 years and not really, wow. you know, I know of many people who just didn't really feel the need to do anything different, you know, cause it's just mm-hmm. when there's such a variety in what you see and do every day, it can be really rewarding just in that there are a lot of SLPs depending in any setting really that work into more administrative positions whether that's at a school or a hospital or anything else. For example, my early intervention supervisor just became the director of the program of the early intervention program. So she's now supervising all of the clinicians, not just SLPs. You could also get a PhD, become a professor. In my grad program, the clinical professors, the people who supervised our clinical experiences didn't have PhDs, they just had masters, but uh, that would be another way to sort of move up and do a different kind of work. But there isn't like sort of a designated ladder that you would go up. Are there certain promotions or positions that you're trying to work towards personally? I have talked about with my supervisor. There are, there have been a lot of times when I have been able to step up and like run meetings and things like that in the absence of my supervisor. And just again, given our sort of unique standalone charter experience, times when I 
and we're a newer school so we are really often like building the programs that we're running and there's a lot of room for creativity in that and so this year actually we had talked about but then you know COVID happened and things things go a little crazy but we had talked about sort of me taking on a couple more responsibilities in the administrative role but that I have a high enough caseload that I couldn't do that plus my caseload so that would take some willingness for the school to hire maybe like a part-time person or something like that so that didn't totally work out another thing that I did this last year and will probably do again this year is I supervised a graduate student who came and did a clinical experience at the school so that's something that I'm sort of trying to it's not a promotion really but like a experience building thing that I'm working on too. If you could be doing anything else for a living and money and education were not factors, what would you want to do? I think I would be a farmer. Interesting. (laughs) I just really, I don't know if it's, you know, the last few months experience talking as well, but I just am really drawn to being sort of in touch with the land and I have no idea how to be a farmer. I mean, my, my mom is a big gardener. And so I've like always done that. And I have little pots in my apartment here that I, that I take care of. So that part of farming, I think would be really cool, whether it's like a traditional farm or just, you know, I get to have a big garden or something. I have no idea how to take care of animals. So that would be something I would have to learn. (laughs) But my grandparents were farmers. So, you know, maybe it's in my DNA or something. Yeah, that's different. I haven't gotten that before. (laughs) I don't know, just, you know, something, sometimes it just would feel nice, I think, to be more connected to where I live and the the land where I am. It's hard in the city to feel that way too. So. And I'm sure getting that feeling of self-reliance, especially now when it's a little more difficult to go out and rely on others. Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice to kind of have that built built in security in some ways too. So do you feel like there's other information that you didn't get to touch on that you think other people should know if they might be, you know, interested in this field? I would say getting into grad school is like pretty competitive, mostly because the programs are small there aren't really enough PhDs in the field to accommodate the desire to get in the programs are too small for the the number of applicants. So they have to be pretty competitive. So that can be hard for a lot of people. And some people have to try for like a couple of years to get in to the school that either the school that they want to or a school just, you know, to have all the information. So like I personally didn't get in to grad school when I applied and then got in on a wait list like a month before school started, which obviously was really stressful (laughs) and had me questioning, you know, what I, what I wanted to do and if I should try to continue and apply again and things like that. So that was a stressful thing. And also graduate schools, like many grad programs is pretty intense. So it's a, it's a big commitment for that two years that you're in school, but given the variety of what you can do in the field, it's amazing that they even condense that all into two years. It's a lot of information to learn. So it feels pretty intense at the time, but it is short generally. So that's nice. You get done quickly. But where did you go to graduate school? I went to the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. So I guess those programs are maybe more typically found at the bigger schools. Yeah. I mean, here in Boston, there are like 10 grad programs in the area. I think there are a lot of schools that have them. Yeah. Smaller schools, most likely, unless it's like a specialty thing wouldn't really have them in Utah, for example, there are three grad programs in the whole state rather than, 
you know, 10 or 15 in the Boston area. So, but again, Boston is an education hub. I mean, when I was applying, I didn't really have the flexibility to go anywhere. So I really only focused in Utah because of my husband's job. So I don't know a lot about many other programs. It's housed usually in like either the health sciences or social and behavior sciences. So if a school has a robust program like that, then they most likely would have an SLP program as well. Audiology and speech pathology really go hand in hand. My undergrad program from there, you could either go to grad school for speech or audiology. So if there's an audiology program, there's probably a speech program too. I love it. It's hard sometimes like any job, but I'm really happy about my choice five years post-grad school, you know, so (laughs) that's pretty good. And it is, it's just really interesting, never really ceases to be interesting, which is really, really good for me to continue to feel interested and engaged in that way. Thank you to Amy for donating her time to the show. If you or someone you know is interested in becoming a future guest, please email employedpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. 